Hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is Thursday, November 3rd, and we're talking with Harold Zakon, professor in the Departments of Neuroscience and Integrated Biology at the University of Texas at Austin. Harold's lab studies ion channels, which of course are the fundamental basis of excitability and intercellular communication. So as neuroscientists, we should probably view them as the most important thing in the world. Of course. And, uh, <laughs> but it gets even better because his lab focuses on some really interesting aspects of ion channels. Most people study ion channels. They study gating of ion channels, or they study the structure of ion channels, or they study the way that ion channels cause cells to do what they do. Uh, or they might even study the evolutionary origin of ion channels. But Harold studies all of those things. Maybe that's <laughs> why you're in the integrative biology department. And so his work is really unique. Uh, maybe not completely unique, but unique among people I know <laughs> because his, he focuses on the evolution of the channels and how evolutionary specialization of ion channels creates the diversity of nervous system specialization and behavior among species that is essential for evolution. Uh, this uh, includes the origin of differences in sensory organs, for example, that allow different species to sense different aspects of the environment. And some of his recent work, no, uh, this, I don't mean to restrict it because I know Harold has studied a lot of other things too, but some of his recent work is on evolutionary genetics of electric field sensation and communication in weakly electric fish. And I think that's probably what we'll talk about today, at least most of the time. We could change. So welcome, Harold. It's great to have you. Hi. Also with us today is Todd Troyer, animal communication expert here at UTSA. <laughs> Hello. And longtime podcast participant. Hi, Todd. And me, I'm Charlie Wilson. So, Harold, before we dig into the molecular genetics, which I think we should, uh, I think we could use some background on the electric organs of weekly electric fish. And so, could you give us a little tutorial on these, what they are, what species have them, and what they're used for, and the sort of unique evolutionary benefit of studying them? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's a rich history here because humans have known about strong electric fish, that is, fish that make a very strong electrifying discharge, probably since the first time they stepped in water that had them. Um, and uh, we certainly know Galvani uh, and Volta studied strong electric organs, so they uh, uh, from a scientific point of view, historically have been very important in the beginning understanding of bioelectricity. Um, I will just say, for the more molecularly oriented, the first sodium channels were cloned from electric organ of electric eels, the first acetylcholine receptors from electric organ of torpedo rays. So just in neuroscience, they are interesting and important historically. Um, what uh, one thing that also has interested scientists since the 19th century is they understood that electric organs come from muscle. So that means either muscle has differentiated into the electric organ cells or some precursor uh, has derived from muscle lineages to make an electric organ. How do they know that? Well, 
There's really very little on the molecular, or I should say the cellular and developmental biology, but if you get specimens of animals that are you know, newly hatched or follow the, the uh, development of the electric organ, you can basically watch cells divide, become, in some cases, start expressing uh, proteins of muscles, and then the proteins fall apart and the cells change their anatomy. So we know that they, they come from either differentiating muscle cells or some precursor to them. So one very interesting topic is how does one cell type give rise to an evolutionarily novel cell type? And one reason we study electric fish generally is because beside the electric organ, they have sensory cells to detect their own electric fields and those of neighbors. They have brain circuits to process electrosensory information. They have brain circuits to control the output of their electric organ. And of course, they also have to integrate all of those brain circuits with circuits they already have. Because if you're using a signal, for example, to, to court, as they do, and I'll tell you more about this, but to court other species. In other words, if your communication is in electricity, you've got to make sure, you know, all the other parts of the brain that are running courtship and aggression, etc., also have access to this. So it's evolutionarily a really complicated problem where individual organs come from, how they all integrate into a, a brain. And it happened at least twice. It happened at least twice, probably more times, but there are two groups that are very well studied. So with weak electric fish, um, historically they were not discovered, well I should say, they were not really studied until the 1950s because anatomists in the late 1900s were scratching their heads over the fact that they found fish that had cells that looked just like electric organ cells in electric eels, but they didn't make electricity. And it took the invention of amplifiers and oscilloscopes to actually visualize that these animals are making weak electric fields that could not be sensed by anyone. I, I can just tell you, when we had electric eels in our lab, you just put your finger in the tank and, man, you feel it. They discharge and it's like you're touching an electric socket. But when you have a weakly electric fish, you could pick them up and you don't sense anything. But the fish have very sensitive receptors and they can detect their own fields and those from neighbors. So is there any, is there any, uh, like I'm trying to think, I was thinking about evolutionary precursors. Is there any, are there fish that detect fields from mussels? like their own muscles, right? So they could be detecting things that were muscles first and have the sensory side of things. Yeah. And, and then just lose and have the muscles do something that they're already doing. Right? right. Well, you know, that's one of the big questions in evolutionary biology in general, not specifically electric organs, but how do you get from A to B? And especially when B is a highly derived, highly complex system uh, how do you change 
elements, be they genes, which is one of the things we're interested in, to structural proteins, to morphology, to the whole rest of the animal. Uh, and that's just with one. You know, we could ask, how does an electric organ evolve? But then, why does it evolve? And how does it also co-evolve with sensory receptors that detect it? So it's a complex, complex system. And getting from fish that don't have it to fish that do is really a major undertaking to understand this. And I hope will contribute to the general understanding of how organisms evolve. It's sort of hard to imagine it happening over a really extended period of time. Because what good is the electric organ if there's no electrosensor? Right. And, or the sensor without the organ. And then the brain circuits that, that analyze that yeah. without that peripheral information, it seems, I mean, if you look at it on the chart of all the different fish about where it happened, yeah. it looks like it happened all at once. Of course, that chart doesn't have time in it. It just has the right. branching of the species. But do we know anything? Can we tell anything from a fossil record or anything? About um, not much from the fossil record, but what we can do is if we look at living species and just ask who has what. Um, now, when I say electroreceptors, I'm actually uh, truncating or uh, simplifying uh, the terminology, there are different kinds of electroreceptors. So um, many fish, like elasmobranchs, uh, lampreys, uh, as well as some weakly electric fish, uh, well, okay, ha ha have evolved one kind of electroreceptor called ampullary receptors. So there's been multiple evolutions of a kind of receptor cell, and they look similar, the organs and the receptors in different species that have independently evolved these. They are sensitive to DC and low frequencies, which is to say under 20 hertz, maybe 100 hertz max, but really we're talking DC to tens of hertz. Um, these are very useful for picking up muscle potentials. So they likely detect the muscle potentials of potential prey. So it's very likely the case that the first electroreceptors were evolved to detect prey. But as you mentioned, Todd, fish also will make their own uh, potentials from their own muscles. And after that, first step of getting the ampullary receptors, it would have been likely that the fish evolved, um, began evolving electric organs to make synchronous discharges. Now, even at, at the beginning, there, there, there are a lot of things that had to be done to make electric organs. The prime thing is that the cells can't, uh, can't contract because if you contract, every time you're discharging, you know, you're, you're, it'll affect your locomotion. So different uh, species would have to find a way to disable contraction. Um, and in fact, if we look across different animals, fish, that have electric organs, we can find uh, there are some catfish 
that have evolved weak electric organs probably multiple times. And in some species, they look pretty much like muscle cells, but they don't contract. They have fewer sarcomeres, but they look like they, they aren't that far away from a muscle phenotype. And there are other species. So in other words, if you look across species, some have electric organs that look very much like muscle. And yet they don't contract and they do discharge. So the first thing to happen is contraction has to be disabled. But also electric organs are found in different places, in some fish on the body, in some fish near the head, in the stargazers, which are fascinating fish, the oculomotor muscles become electric organs. So somehow, during the development of muscle, there has to be a, a focus so that only some muscles change and others remain. So there are a lot of things that has, have so to happen. So there's a self-fate aspect of this. Absolutely. That, that is an obligatory step. Yes. in developing this. And there must be a similar self-fate um, issue for the sensory cells. Yes. And those could be independent or they could be connected genetically somehow. Right. So I was telling you about the low-frequency sensors, the ampullary receptors. They are found not only in fish like elasmobranchs, that is sharks and skates and rays, um, lampreys independently. Uh, they seem to have been lost in the ancestor of bony fish, teleosts, because, well, let's just say that's the case, and that most teleosts do not have any kind of electroreceptor. Then, independently, two groups of teleosts re-evolved, whatever that means, ampullary receptors. Now, I always wonder, what does re-evolve mean? Does it mean that from scratch they evolved this? Does it mean that the genetic programs that were used in the past in, in distant ancestors was reactivated. It had been stored away on tape. <laughs> exactly. Who knows? But two groups then re-evolved these ampullary receptors. One group was the ancestor of the South American weakly electric fish and the catfish, because catfish are the closest uh, relative of this, the South American weakly electric fish. So catfish can sense electric fields and are a major predator of weakly electric fish where they exist in Africa and South America. Catfish live worldwide. You know, when I say catfish, I'm, there are hundreds of species, but I mean all catfish have these sensory cells, the ampullary receptors. Then, in addition, um, a second kind of receptor evolved just in the weakly electric fish. So it's not found in catfish. Uh, and in the African fish, it's f basically found in all of those. But this is called a tuberous receptor. And this receptor is really what got me started in this whole field because 
The ampullary receptors are tuned to DC and low frequencies, pretty much everybody. The tuberous receptors are tuned to the frequencies of the fish's species-specific electric discharge. So when you record tuberous receptors in electric fish that emit low frequencies, they're tuned. When you record ones in fish species that emit moderate frequencies, and let me just tell you, uh, for those of you who study mammalian neurons, uh, the low frequency ones we're talking about are 50 to 200 hertz. The mid-frequency species that emit, uh, these are ones that emit sine waves, go from 250 to about 500, 600 hertz. And then there are high-frequency species that discharge from, say, six, 700 hertz all the way up to 1.2 or 3 kilohertz. And that means the neurons that are driving the electric organ have to fire at those frequencies. So that's a lot higher than even your fast-firing GABA uh, <laughs> interneuron, which everyone is impressed that it fires so fast. <laughs> at any rate, um, so with each of these species, the tuberous receptors are tuned to detect the electric organ discharge of that species. And some of the early work that we did was looking at the tuning, well, first I should say, early work that Carl Hopkins did was look at the tuning of electroreceptor, tuberous electroreceptors in different individuals. And he found in one species, the receptors of each individual were best tuned to its own frequency. So if a fish was discharging at, let's say, 65 hertz, its receptors detected its own discharge. If one was at 90 hertz, it was detecting its discharge. And since there was a sex difference in the species, with females discharging about an octave higher than males, every fish had individually tuned tuberous electroceptors to its own discharge. So that is one of the things that got me interested in studying electroreceptor tuning. And the first experiment that I did in this field was to ask if there's a sex difference, can we alter that with hormones, sex hormones? So we found uh, treating female electric fish of this species called Sternopygus, who had EOD, uh, electric organ discharge frequencies that were high and receptors that were tuned to high frequencies. We treated them with testosterone and over about two weeks we could see the tuning of the receptors shifted down to low frequencies to match the electric output. So this is what got me interested in how do you tune a membrane? And furthermore, the tuberous receptors act like little, uh, tight little filters. And if you hit them with an electric pulse, they ring, they're oscillators. So I got very interested in how electroreceptors are tuned, uh, th ultimately through ion channels. Um, so uh, for various reasons, we moved from receptors to the electric organ, really for technical reasons, because try as we might, we were never able to make intracellular recordings from the electroreceptors 
This was the early days of patch clamping. But we could record from the electric organ, because they were so big, we could stick a, an electrode in. So we switched to the electric organs, which themselves, in these fish, had a very interesting property in the different uh, fish of different sexes, the action potential was of different durations. Males, by making a, long, a low frequency discharge, had to emit long duration spikes. A female, by making a high frequency discharge, had to have narrower duration spikes. And so we showed that spike duration in the electric organ, frequency of firing, which was directed by the brain, and tuning of the electroreceptors, three electrically independent events, even though they, uh, were, their electrical activity was very different, had to be coordinated. And androgens could shift them all, and estrogens in the opposite direction. So we were asking questions of how do you, how do you on a system level really, shift electrical activity of three different tissues to remain and register. So is there an answer? Is there a leader? It's all, it's all that. It's all hormones. Well, it is all hormones. We did some crazy experiments where our first hypothesis was, well, maybe what happens is if the electric organ changes. Um, so the electric organ is run by a nucleus in the brainstem called a pacemaker. And these are electrotonically coupled neurons. They all fire at once. They send action potentials down the spinal cord to the motor neurons. They all fire at once. And then they cause the electric organ to fire. And the membrane properties of the electric organ determine the duration of each pulse. In other words, the spike duration. So we thought, well, maybe the hormone works on the pacemaker, causes it to lower its frequency. And when we were studying the electroreceptors, we thought maybe the new electric field frequency retunes the receptors. So we tested that hypothesis um, a number of ways. But um, one of the things we did was we could eventually lesion the pacemaker so there was no pacemaker, the electrically silent fish, give them androgens, and the receptor still shifted down by exactly the same amount. And then when an antibody was developed to look for androgen receptors, we found them in the electroreceptors of so the So they fish. were all independently responding yeah. to the hormones. And we did the same thing on the electric organ side. But what we, calibrates we, them so that yeah. that's how well, the yes. ask that question. We, we, we don't understand what calibrates uh -huh. them. We do know that androgen works independently at each level. Um, so then really, in the species we began studying for the first 20 years of my career, before we moved into evolutionary studies, really, um, we said, well, how do we study the spike duration in the electric organ? Because that's something we could measure. Um, and we developed a voltage clamp prep in order to do that. Um, and uh, I, I will just say parenthetically, when we applied to NIH, who had been funding us up to this time, and we said, we want to move into biophysics, and we gave some preliminary data. They said, 
uh, you're not really biophysicists. You need to um, do some more work and come back to us and then show us. So we did that. And as I'll, I'll tell you the results of that, but then 10 years or so later, when we got into molecular biology uh, to understand how the channels were changing to change the currents, we submitted a grant proposal and they said, yeah, you guys are biophysicists. What do you know about molecules? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we voltage clamped the cells, the electrocytes, and what we found was if you look at the sodium current, uh, if you look at the sodium current in a female that makes a narrow spike, the current activates quickly and inactivates quickly. If we look, for example, at the other end at a male with a long duration action potential, the sodium current activates slowly and then inactivates slowly. So we had at least a sodium current that was going to prolong the spike. Then we eventually recorded potassium currents and we saw essentially the same thing. A, high, a fish that makes a narrow spike had a rapidly activating potassium current and a male that makes a long duration spike uh, very slowly activating. And, and because each fish has its own individual frequency, if we took fish at low, mid, and high frequencies, we could plot out the activation and inactivation currents, uh, a time constants, and it fit a line beautifully. And furthermore, we showed there was a correlation between the time constants of sodium and potassium currents. They're co-regulated. So within one cell, these two currents were co-regulated in some way. So having done that, we thought, this is now the time we need to do molecular biology. So we cloned the channels, and, and uh, by this time, sodium and potassium channels had already been cloned uh, in mammals. Of course, the sodium channel first from electric eel, electric organ. So uh, we were able to, you know, basically do it by PCR. We had no genome. So just brute force PCR, we managed to get uh, sequences of the channels. And it was at that time that I began noticing that in the electric fish that we were studying, the rate of amino acid substitutions in its channel was very high. And in fact, the very first bioinformatic thing I did, I suppose, was I took a human, a zebrafish, and an electric fish sodium channel uh, sequences, and I aligned them. And I found that in many cases, the electric fish showed greater differences than either the human or the zebrafish. So I knew something was going on with these channels. At any rate, part of what we did was then measure the levels of these channels. And furthermore, um, we also knew that sodium channels had auxiliary subunits. And these auxiliary subunits, called beta subunits, we knew from other people's work, in, in mammals mostly, um, could influence the rate of inactivation of the sodium channel. So what we found when we just did um, you know, quantify the levels of these different sodium channel and beta subunit in our fish, 
that the one thing that was interesting was the level of the beta, the, the expression of beta subunits was higher in females, lower in males. So, of course, the more beta subunits you have, the faster the channels are going to inactivate. So we were able to show that that molecule was important in sculpting the uh, discharge. And we haven't looked so much at the potassium channels, and we haven't looked at pacemaker or electroreceptors because they were very difficult to work with. And we were on a roll with ion channels in the electric organ and was noticing that in one species of electric fish they were evolving quickly. That got me very interested in looking at other species. And that's what led me really into the field of how ion channels evolve. And I, I, I will say, you know, it was as when we did this work, I, I began reading much more about molecular evolution and I realized there are lots of really interesting studies of how molecules evolve. But they were mostly things like uh, antibody molecules or sperm and egg proteins that have to bind to each other for species to fertilize their own egg. Many, many things, but very few people were looking at channels. And when I looked in neuroscience, there, there was a lot of work on molecular neuroscience of channels, but very little of it in a comparative context. So I felt there was a niche here to really start looking at how ion channels evolve in particular ways in, so in particular animals. Organ, in the electric organ, the evolution of the ion channels that are specific to the electric organ is one of the things that you know well now. Yes. And so maybe it, we don't have, we don't want to spend too much time that I, I wish you would sort of quickly talk to us about the about the segregation of sodium channels between muscle and and the electric organ. Yeah. Well, I'll just say that uh, one topic of great interest to people who study molecular evolution and evolution in general is the question of genome evolution. Geno and genomes are very dynamic. There are a lot of very interesting things about them. Um, but one is that genes can duplicate or genes can be lost. So there can be a loss or gain of function. And that can happen on a gene-by-gene -gene level, or it can happen when a whole genome dupl uh, duplicates. And so with bony fish, with teleosts, it's known that there was a whole genome duplication at the origin. And so in principle, every gene that we have should be duplicated. In other words, two related copies in fish. Now, that's not always true, but for first principle, we'll, we'll say that's true. And so what this does, it now allows you, not just in fish, but any organisms that have gene duplications, you have essentially one copy that can continue doing its original function, and a second copy that can take on a new function. Or you can have two copies that now diverge in interesting ways. So what we found was the sodium channel gene duplicated. One copy stayed in the muscle. Oh, so 
vertebrate sodium vertebrate muscles have a single sodium channel gene. We have one sodium channel gene expressed in our muscles. But because fish had a whole genome duplication, they had two different genes. And most fish have both genes expressed in their muscle. And that, to me, is still nothing we've studied, but interesting. Why do they still need two genes? And we don't know. But this has allowed the two groups of electric, weakly electric fish, the African and South American, independently to lose the expression of one of these genes from muscle and to allow it to be expressed in the novel electric organ. And so, in essence, those, those genes were doing the same job, we think, in a muscle, and then one was sent into this evolutionarily novel place by virtue of the fact that there was a spare copy, if you will, and it could now evolve at higher rates and show interesting changes. Um, and we saw something similar with potassium channels. So the very fact of a gene genome duplication gave raw material that could be used to help shape the electrical activity of the electric organ. We need a new sodium channel. You got a spare gene? Yeah, I just <laughs> happen to have one. <laughs> okay, well, that's an incredibly cool story. Thanks a lot for talking to us. You're home. welcome. My and pleasure. Thanks, Todd? Sure thing. It was fun. And this Lots more to talk uh, about. <laughs> this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. 